Well, if you've been following along for the past two Lord's Days, you'll understand the metaphor when I say that we have taken our seat atop one of the great mountain peaks of Scripture. And we're taking the time to observe the view that it gives us of the greatness and extent of the salvation that is ours, the salvation that God has given to us or performed for us and in us through His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now last week, before actually settling in, I'm trying to fill out that that picture, before settling in in our seat on that mountaintop, we sort of stood and, and took a 360 degree survey all around us of the, of the landscape. And rather than seeing what we would imagine, a multiplicity of doctrines and, and dogmas and, and intricate articulations of truth, what we found was that the whole of it is summed up in one very simple truth, and that is the Christian's union with Christ. The fullness and extent and greatness of the salvation that is ours in Christ is summed up in that one doctrine, union with Christ. Or more specifically, we could say that as we surveyed, as we looked around, and we looked at the whole matter of salvation, we really just saw it all terminating in one figure, Jesus Christ, and all that He's accomplished. We've seen that flowing out of the very heart of God, as it were, of Him, every Christian is presently in this state of existence that we call, or that the Bible calls, in Christ. Two simple words, in Christ. And that phrase, the biblical language, in Christ, and all that it brings with it in Scripture, really sums up the fullness of salvation. Everything that we call salvation is found in two words, in Christ and our union with Him. I define that union as the deep, abiding, life-giving relation that every Christian shares to the Son of God. We saw that this union as to its nature is vital, spiritual, federal, and mystical. It's vital, meaning it is a life-giving union. The life of Christ is the life of the soul of a believer. It's a spiritual union, meaning it is a union that that is uh, made real by the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Spirit that is Christ's Spirit is the Spirit that dwells in us so that we are joined together like the fibers of a plant, a branch to a vine, with Christ Himself. The life of the stock is the life of the branch. Christ being the stock, His life flows into us. It's It's a spiritual and vital union through the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's a federal union, meaning that Christ stands as our representative so that everything that He does and has performed, He has done and performed for us in our place as our representative. And we saw that it's a mystical union, meaning this union and this doctrine has existed from eternity. It was not fully made known to the the saints of God in ages past, but has been fully revealed and is fully understood only when we see the incarnation and the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ Himself. There we see the fullness of this picture. It's vital, it's spiritual, it's federal, and it's mystical. We also saw that it began, this union, began in eternity in the mind of God. It enters into time as the Son of God comes into the world to carry out the charge given to Him by His Father in the place of the elect. And then the Spirit of Christ takes the work of Christ and applies it to each individual saint personally, beginning at the moment of regeneration. And then the virtue of that union continues to flow to the saints throughout their life and even into eternity. It's at that point or the the point of regeneration and we might even say regeneration and first faith that Christ, quoting John Ball, Christ and all His benefits are truly and verily made ours. We can claim that whatever has happened to Christ has happened to us, said Martin Lloyd-Jones, because of this union. We're joined to Him. 
Salvation, in the biblical sense, is nothing more or less than this. Union with the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, by His own Spirit. And out of that come all of the blessings that we typically associate with salvation or being a Christian. Because we've been united to Christ by His Spirit, we can then see and understand and believe that our sins have been forgiven because we're joined to Him. Because we're united to Christ by His Spirit, our eyes have been opened so that we are able to see the spiritual nature of the contents of the Word of God and we adore that spiritual content. Not just surface level uh, aphorisms and, and, and uh, platitudes, but the spiritual nature of what the Word of God reveals. Because we have Christ's Spirit, we love it as it is the Word of Christ. Because we've been united to Christ, we come to believe certain truths and we reject opposing truths. Because we're united to Christ, we see the necessity of using the Bible to guide our lives. Because we've been united to Christ, we actually delight in submitting ourselves to the teachings of Jesus because we know, as Peter said, He's the only one who has the words of eternal life. Because of our union with Christ, we find it a delight to render our worship to God in the assembly on the Lord's day. Because of our union with Christ, we have this hope that we shall not perish, but we will have everlasting life. Why? Because Christ's life is everlasting. We're joined to Him. Everything that is often associated with Christianity, everything that, that one might say it means to be a Christian or it means to be saved, all of it is summed up in union with Christ. And that's why Paul starts there. And because of Him, God, you are in Christ Jesus. But now let's continue working our way through this first because Paul goes on to open up that idea further. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, I, I, I want to keep that concept of union with Christ in our minds as we walk through the rest of this verse because everything comes out of union with Christ. So here's where I want us to focus this morning. You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness. That's what I want us to think about this morning. Remember that righteousness, sanctification, and redemption are epexegetical. They're, they are a further unpacking of this, of this bigger term wisdom or this, this larger concept of wisdom. And so wisdom is first unpacked using the term righteousness. And other translations bear out this reading. One says, Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness. Another says, Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, and then just a colon, our righteousness. In other words, here's what this looks like for the believer. So then Paul says to the saints, you are united to Christ Jesus, who by that union and because of that union has become righteousness from God to you. And that, that is the doctrine, keeping with the language that we used a couple weeks ago. God has given us a person, and that person is our righteousness. That's what he's saying here. In bringing to pass his long-expected purposes for us in our salvation, God has given us his Son. And when we begin to zoom into the details of, of how exactly that is manifested in our salvation, what does it mean when we get His Son? Well, first, Paul says in this verse, it means we get righteousness. God gave us His Son who is our righteousness. What we needed but lacked, God had and provided in His Son. Now, you'll remember it wasn't long ago that we talked about the righteousness of God as an attribute. And we, we, we dealt with just the word righteousness as meaning rightness or correctness or moral purity. Very often we use the term holiness to refer to moral perfection or purity. And that, that is essentially the same thing as righteousness as it 
would look in us. Moral uprightness. To be righteous is to be pure. To be righteous is to be above and beyond all charge of wrong. No charge sticks. That's righteous. Now the very first place that we see righteousness is in the Garden of Eden. The first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve, they were originally righteous upon their creation. From the very moment of Adam's creation, from the the dirt of Eve's creation, from the rib of Adam, from that moment, they had no moral defects. Perfectly righteous. You, You could not charge Adam and Eve with any wrongdoing at all. No sin could be charged against them. The Bible says, God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. And then verse 31 of that chapter, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Now God is not going to call something good if it is unrighteous. When He said it was very good, if we apply that to the moral nature of Adam and Eve, we would say what that means is God said they were Perfectly, morally righteous. And Ecclesiastes tells us that explicitly God made man upright, morally straight, ethically just. That's Adam and Eve. Righteous. Now remember what we discussed last Lord's Day with regard to our union with Christ. Federal union. He's our representative. All men are either federally in Adam or in Christ. That means that all people are represented before God by either Adam or Christ. Now, if we were to go back to the Garden of Eden, that was true. At Adam's creation, he at that point represented the entire human race that would come after him. He stood as our representative. He was our federal head. And so as long as Adam was very good, as long as Adam properly bore the image of God to the created world around him, as long as he was upright, as long as he was righteous, the entire human race who would come after him bore that exact same standing before God. As long as Adam was righteous, we were righteous in him. Now, why was Adam righteous? Was it that God created him and watched him for a time and saw that he was perfectly obeying the commands and God said, you know what? He's, he, he's righteous. I see that he is upright. He's, he's good. No, the answer is he was created that way. Adam was righteous from the start. We very often say we sin because we are sinners. Well, Adam was righteous because he was created righteous. His his nature was perfectly righteous. Remember what Ecclesiastes said. God made man upright. That's the way he came off the conveyor belt. Perfectly righteous. God created man. And God saw everything that he, God, had made and it was very good. Adam was righteous because God made him righteous. So Adam's righteousness was really a reflection of the God who made him. The Lord is the righteous one. Exodus 9.27 Jeremiah 12.1 Righteous are you, O Lord. Daniel 9.7 Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. So while we might say the first that we get to see righteousness in human form is Adam and Eve, prior to that we have the perfectly, eternally righteous God who made them. God is perfectly, eternally, immutably righteous. God's righteousness would shock us if we had the slightest conception of it. It would shock us. It would scare us. We would not be comfortable around God if we had any conception of how perfectly righteous God is. And God made Adam, and therefore Adam bore that type of a righteousness. And this is a very, a very important point. God's righteousness laid the foundation of Adam's righteousness. God was righteous 
first. God made Adam, and he made him to enjoy fellowship with his creator. Well, God can only have fellowship with that which is righteous, and therefore Adam had to be righteous. Adam's righteousness made it possible for God to actually come and share personal fellowship with Adam. God and Adam were were on good terms because God was righteous and Adam was righteous. They got along. God, God could walk right into the garden and begin fellowship. And Adam had no need to fear. He had no, no, uh, no need to run away, nothing to hide. He, he, I don't know how, how that looked, but they had fellowship. They talked like friends, I'm assuming. Again, in union with Adam, as long as Adam had his righteousness... Every human being that would ever come from his loins after him, the entire human race, were viewed by God as righteous. We could even say that as Adam held fellowship with God in his pre-fall state, that in him we also had a fellowship with God federally. Now of all of the perfections that Adam had in his righteous condition... There was one which he lacked, many ultimate perfections, but one very, in, very important, uh, a, a crucial perfection that Adam lacked, and that was Adam was not immutable. Adam could change. So Adam had righteousness, but he also had the ability to go from righteous to unrighteous. And that's what he did. You know the story. And God said to Adam in Genesis 3.17, Listen, children, see if you notice anything interesting about this. You have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. So God said, don't eat that fruit. Adam ate that fruit, therefore Adam disobeyed. Now in that instant, as he disobeyed, He became unrighteous. He transgressed the covenant, Hosea says. He was blameless in his ways from the day he was created, but then unrighteousness was found in him when he sinned against God. He could change. There was nothing in Adam that said he's sealed righteous eternally. And he fell. And being unrighteous... He now has to be thrown out of the garden. He can't have fellowship with God anymore. God can't have fellowship with him anymore. The only way of fellowship between God and man from that point forward was by blood sacrifice, blood atonement. God had not changed in all of this. God is still righteous. God's righteousness had not changed. And God could not lower his standard to fellowship with sinful men apart from blood atonement. Because God's nature had not changed. So he can't lower the standard. He he is required by his own righteous nature to, to, to have only righteousness, only absolute perfect righteousness in his presence. By his nature. God can't change the rules because his nature demands that to be the case. And so Adam and Eve must be cast out. They were forced out and down the mountain of God. Now, what does that mean for the rest of us? We're in Adam. Adam sins. Adam becomes unrighteous. Adam's forced away from God. What does that mean? Well, that means we also were forced away from God in him, in Adam. Listen to these portions of Scripture from Romans 5. You know these. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. When Adam sinned, it was as if we all sinned in him. And that's why... From Adam onward, people began to die. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. By the one man's obedience or disobedience, the many were made sinners. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. I wasn't there. You weren't there, but in Adam, federally, we were. So when he disobeyed, the entire race after him is now credited as disobedient, unrighteous. 
And that's the predicament that the human race finds itself in after the fall. Every human being is conceived in Adam. This is why even infants in the womb die. That death, that curse, that condemnation from sin passes through the natural generation of every human being so that even oftentimes infants succumb to that condemnation, that judgment, that trial. They're they're not outside of the bounds of the fall in Adam. Every time there's a child conceived in the womb, that one life is the product of God's mighty power working in the joining of two people, a mom and a dad. But guess what? Mom and dad are sinners. Adam was a sinner, Eve was a sinner, and every mom and dad after Adam and Eve have been sinners. And so therefore every child is conceived in sin. As Job asks properly, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. It can't happen. That's the state of man. That's just you and me. All of us. Adults, children, we we come into the world unrighteous. None is righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not even one. Now, how does that affect our relationship with God? Ephesians 4 says that we are alienated from the life of God. Alienated means cut off. When you alienate someone, that means you you put them outside of your group. You don't want to talk to them anymore. They're, They're on their own. Well, that's how we are with God. We're cut off from Him. Again, God has not changed. God remains righteous. And therefore, Paul says, He will render to each one according to his works. Those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. We are conceived in unrighteousness. We are brought forth in unrighteousness. We live in unrighteousness. We obey unrighteousness. And therefore, because God is righteous... He must render a judgment, a condemnation on all that are unrighteous. For those people, there can only be expected wrath and fury from God. So what is it that we need at this point? We need righteousness. That's what we had in Adam. That's what we lost in Adam. That's what caused us to be cut off from God in Adam. Well, that's what we need at this point. We need righteousness. If we're to be welcomed back into fellowship with God, there is to be, or if there is to be reconciliation, then we must be righteous. That's the only way it works. The problem is, we've already blown it. We're, we're far past the state of, of trying to mend this thing together. Mankind, rather, in his sin, says... We don't, we don't even need God. If that's the way it's going to be, we don't need God. We can obtain everything that He's promising. We can just, we'll just get it our own selves and our own ways. And we'll get wisdom and we'll get might and we'll get riches. We'll even, we'll even obtain those things through unrighteous means. And we'll glorify ourselves and we'll enjoy ourselves using the very thing that separates us from God, our unrighteousness. And when truth comes, well, we'll just, we'll just take that truth and we'll, we'll suppress it in our unrighteousness. We'll just ignore it, avoid it, pretend like it's not true. Call it falsehood. If all of us started today, if we, if we made a pact, we got together and we, we drew up a covenant, a solemn league and covenant of Covenant Bible Church, we promise, we covenant together, therefore, today in the sight of God and these witnesses, that from here forward, not one of us will commit a single sin until we've breathed our last. Period. We all sign our names to it. Yeah, we, we, we can't do it. Number one, we can't do it. It wouldn't work. Number two, we've already got past sins. We've already sinned. What are we going to do about the, the sins we've already committed? We're, we are unrighteous. Remember, we, our unrighteousness is not just because we did some bad things. We are unrighteous by nature. That's who we are by nature, and it comes out of us. We need to be righteous. If we are to be reconciled to God, we must be righteous. But that ship has sailed, it's gone. Out to sea, past the horizon, farewell. It's gone. 
There is no hope for man in man. There's no hope for you in you. There's no hope for me in me. There's no hope for you in me. There's no hope for me in you. None of us can offer any of the others any hope. You can't offer your children hope. They can't offer you hope. Your wife can't offer you hope. Your husband can't offer you hope. There is no hope for us to be found in this room. There is no hope in man. No scheme that we could imagine can mitigate the problem. We don't have an answer to give. We don't have a defense to make. God says you're unrighteous. We have to say, yeah. And that's the end of it. God is righteous. We are unrighteous. But we must be righteous if we are to be in God's presence. And so we, we've we now taken our seat atop this mountain of a text and what is it we see? Well, again, in our 360 degree survey, looking all around us, what was our vision filled with? Our vision was filled not with any of us. Our vision was filled with somebody else. Paul has not brought us to the top of this mountain to show us our despair, but to show us our Savior. What does he say? You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, splicing the verse... Righteousness. You are in Christ Jesus who became to us righteousness. God has given us a person. Again, when we take in the hole from the mountain peak, every direction that we look from our feet to the horizon, all we see is Christ. As far as we can see, as far up as we can see, as far down as we can see, Side to side in every direction. Our eyes, Paul wants our eyes to be filled with Christ, 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 Christ so that we can't see anything else. And now he says, okay, now sit down. Now I want you to focus on one point way out in the distance. On one thing. What do you see? Well, I see Christ. Yeah, but, but, but zoom in. What do you see specifically? He says, you see righteousness. There's a righteousness in Jesus Christ. In this person we find a righteousness. You'll, you'll see men use the phrase alien righteousness. Not that somebody from another planet has, has given righteousness. The, the term alien means out, from the outside, outside of us. An alien righteousness. A righteousness not our own. A righteousness not wrought out by us. It's not a righteousness that we put, worked out on the anvil and hammered and heated and cooled and hammered and heated and cooled. It's not that kind of righteousness. It's not a righteousness wrought out by us. It's not a righteousness even that the Spirit of God works in us so that we then begin to produce some good fruits. It's not even that. It's a righteousness in somebody else. And that someone is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now think about it. Jesus Christ is the Son of God incarnate. He, which means He is both God and man. And as God, according to His nature as God, He is perfectly, eternally, immutably righteous as God. So why would he become a man? What does, that, what does that do? Why did he assume to himself the nature of a man? Well, we return to our union. Those chosen in him in eternity are those who are in time going to be needing a righteousness. And so he takes, out, takes our nature to work out a righteousness for us. It was not for him. He's God and man. Jesus Christ was not more righteous at the end of 33 and a half years of living on this earth than he was in eternity. He's not more righteous. It didn't do anything for him. Nothing. It added nothing to him. His holy life added nothing to his perfectly righteous nature. Even when he was conceived, he was called that holy thing. From conception. None of it is for him. It was only, solely, purely for fallen men and women. It adds nothing to him. During his humiliation, that is from the moment of his conception to the moment that he gave up his spirit in death, the man Christ Jesus was utterly, 
exhaustively and comprehensively righteous. That is, He fulfilled all standards of righteousness without exception in word, in deed, in public, in private, in His outward actions, in His inward affections, in everything that He did positively, in everything that He refrained from doing negatively, in every glance of His holy eyes, in every inclination or bending of His holy ears, in every movement of His gracious lips and tongue and vocal cords, in every work of His hands, in every step of His beautiful feet, perfectly righteous. Jesus Christ, that is. Every word that He spoke was perfectly fitted for the occasion and the person and the situation. As He spoke, it was perfectly righteous. Never a word too short, never a sentence too long. No one could say, I, I, I think you went too far there. Never once. Perfectly righteous. Every inclination and thought of His heart was only righteous continually. When He laid His head down at night, every day of His life, every, every, every conscious day of His life, when He laid His head down at night, He laid His head down with a conscience as clear as crystal. Every night. And the first thought that entered His waking mind every morning was purer than fresh snow. Every day. He laid down in peace. He woke up in peace in Himself. His mind never wandered aimlessly, not even for a second. Not a single minute of his life was wasted or spent in vanity. He never grumbled. He never complained. He never murmured about anyone, anything, or any circumstance. When he dressed himself, he was righteous. When he ate his food, he was righteous. When he prayed, his prayers were righteous. When he had conversations, they were righteous conversations. When he worked with Joseph as a carpenter, he worked righteously. When he got off work early, it never crossed his mind that he might spend that extra time on some selfish endeavor. And when he had to work late, he never complained that the requirement was unfair. When he enjoyed good things, he did it in perfect righteousness, never in excess. When he looked at men, his thoughts were perfectly righteous. When he looked at women, his thoughts were perfectly righteous. When he preached, he was righteous in all of his motives. Everything that compelled him to preach, every aim that he had, every goal that he wanted to achieve was perfectly righteous. When he dealt with sinners... He remained perfectly free from all of their sins. When he was slandered, he remained perfectly righteous toward his opponents. When he was hanging on the cross, listening to the mocking of his killers, he never had a single unrighteous thought about any one of them. Now theologians typically address the righteousness of Christ in in two ways, his, his active obedience and his passive obedience. Active meaning the, the obedience of his life and passive not meaning that something happened to him. That wouldn't be obedience. Passive meaning the obedience of his passion or of his sufferings. With regard to his active obedience in birth, in childhood, in early manhood, he was perfectly righteous. How many sins do we attribute to our childhood? More than we know. All, for most of us, all we can say is, I know there were lots of them. I don't even remember. How many sins do we often refer to as sins of our youth? 
or sins of youthfulness. And we, we typically treat those types of sins with a little bit more leniency because they're youthful sins. You know, I was immature. I was ignorant. I didn't know. I was, I was, I was not well taught. I was not well instructed. Jesus of Nazareth was perfectly righteous as a child, perfectly righteous as a young man. There were no sins of his youth. There were no sins of immaturity. Perfectly righteous. When he was tempted by the devil, he remained perfectly righteous. Now we often sin when we're tempted by inanimate circumstances and occasions. We are lured and enticed by our own desires, James says. We are usually our greatest temptation. Our belly grumbles and we murmur. What's taking so long with supper? Well, if you'd have started a little earlier, I wouldn't be sitting there. Do you, do you know how long it's been since I ate lunch? I mean, I've been working hard. Where's supper? Our belly grumbles and we murmur. Forty days and forty nights. No food, no water. Perfectly righteous. No murmuring, no grumbling, no complaining. Stands toe-to-toe with the devil. I, I, I would venture to say not one of us has ever been tempted by the devil himself. We're, we're not that significant to him. The devil himself exposed no weakness, no chink in the righteousness of Christ. When he ministered to other people, it was always in perfect equity and righteousness. Now we often minister out of selfishness or pride. We serve, sadly, with a little hint. Maybe you have to go way back in your mind. You've got to go pretty far back, but you would have to say, even in my best service, there is probably a little sliver of self-service in there. I'm, I am sometimes kind of a little wondered, or wondering, I'm kind of a little curious as to what somebody else is probably gauging about my person and my character as I serve. A little bit of self-service. Very often we will serve to a point, but we will withhold after that point. I'll go this far and no further. Or we show with parti- serve with partiality and favoritism. I'll serve this person, but not that person. Him, but not her. Them, but not them. Christ did all of His ministry in perfect righteousness. When He loved men, He loved them with a righteous love. There was no dissimulation in Christ's love. There was no self-seeking in Christ's love. There was never an outward form of love that was not also met with the true inward heart of love in Christ. If He loved, He loved. And you got all of it. And He held nothing back. He never said, I love you, without thinking, I don't really love Him. When Christ was worshipped, or when Christ worshipped as a man, it was righteous worship. The Bible is clear that Jesus Christ was brought up by His parents to attend worship. He was a, they were a worshiping family. It was their, their common practice to be in the stated assemblies of worship as obedient Jews. And He went with His parents. And He was perfectly righteous in all of His worship. His mind, think about this. An 8, 9, 10-year-old boy, 11-year-old boy, 13-year-old boy, 16-year-old boy, his mind never wandered into worldliness as the, the teacher of the synagogue would be sitting and reading from a scroll. He never got bored with worship. He never thought, my goodness, get on with it. Could you not just you know, summarize the chapter? Do we have to read the whole thing? My goodness, just unroll the scroll. Get to the point. He never did that. Never got bored. As a matter of fact, I believe that from his youth, he was consumed with zeal for the worship of his father's house. And even when he cleansed the temple twice, he did it in perfect righteousness. There was nothing wrong with what he did. Not a, not a motive, not a thought, not a step, not a swing of the whip or crack of the whip was too harsh or too soft. Perfectly righteous. When he contemplated the lost... His thoughts were always perfectly righteous. He was moved with pity, real pity, when he saw lost people. When he contemplated the fact that the fields are white with the harvest, but there are not enough laborers. He was moved with real pity. He preached the gospel to them, sincerely desiring their salvation. He sent out preachers 
with a sincere desire that those preachers would bring back record of, of, of souls that have been saved. When he invited men to come to him, he was not disingenuous. He meant it. When he said, come to me, he didn't then think, well, I hope they don't come. I'm kind of busy today. i got a lot going on. No, when he said, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, weary and heavy laden, he meant, come. Full sincerity, perfect righteousness. He meant it. When he traveled, he did it righteously. He never traveled with impatience like we would often have. He never traveled with a whatever the first century parallel would be to road rage. Never. Perfectly righteous in all of his travels. He gets slowed down, it's the providence of my father. If he sped up, it's the providence of my father. If a highway opens up, I'll take it. If it closes, I'm okay. Perfectly righteous. He never traveled with a, a sluggardly, dilly-dallying attitude. Oh, it's just time. There's plenty of it. No, never a wasted moment. When he was in the marketplace, he conducted himself in perfect righteousness. He never looked upon others with a haughty spirit. He never looked at what he could not afford with covetousness. He never looked at men who had nicer things than him with envy or jealousy. Thinking, well, I wish I had that, but my plight is to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and I don't even have a job and I've got these women following around me taking care of all my needs. I wish I was back to, in the carpenter's shop making a little more money so I could have nicer things. It never crossed his mind. When he had to give his disciples the same lessons repeatedly, he never got perturbed with them in an unrighteous way as we often do with our children. When they asked stupid questions, and they did sometimes, he did not respond in a belittling way to make them embarrassed. When they asked him how to pray, he didn't treat them like spiritual imbeciles in response. Nor did he think an unkind or disparaging thought about them because they asked that question. Are these guys even Christians? What do you mean, how do you pray? No. He said, when you pray, pray like this. He taught them. When the crowds pressed in around him, he did not get frustrated or annoyed. When it came time to pay his taxes, he did not speak harshly of those in authority over him. When he spoke with dignitaries, he did not pander to them in order to flatter them. When Peter denied him, he didn't write him off or just add that into the store of things that he was keeping up against Peter to bring it out later. When the rest of the disciples abandoned them, he didn't hold a grudge against them. When he looked at the cup the Father held before him in Gethsemane, he submitted wholly and perfectly to the will of his Father in perfect righteousness. It was not wrong for him to say, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Because he followed it right up with, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Absolute perfect submission. When he looked down upon the men who mocked him and had beaten him and had nailed his hands and feet to the cross, he prayed for them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When he finally saw Thomas after the resurrection, he didn't bark at him with rebukes for his doubt. He didn't say to Thomas, don't, Do you not ever listen to a word I say to you? What's wrong with you? I told you three times I was going to raise from the dead. Do you not listen? What's the problem? How do I get this through your thick head? He didn't say that. What did he say? Touch me. Touch me. Perfectly righteous. No honest charge could be brought against him. When he was reviled, he did not reciprocate. When he was smacked and punched, he did not retaliate. When he was adored, he did not gloat. When he was followed, he did not boast. When he was ignored, he did not swell with pompous indignation. I can't believe they wouldn't follow me. Don't they know who I am? No, never. And when it came time to die, he obeyed his father. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did all of that for no other reason except the problem that was created by our unrighteousness. He did not 
when he breathed his last and gave up the ghost, his father did not say, now that's righteous right there. Now you've got it, son. I knew you. No, he was as righteous as he had ever been from eternity. It was for us. Every bit of it was for us. And that's what we have to keep in mind. All of this comes under that stage of union that we referred to last week as transient. All this He did as a public person, as a stand-in, as a substitute for us. It was not for Him. It didn't make Him more righteous. In all His living, He was living in our place. He was doing this as a substitute for us. Now the question is obviously how does, how does what He did then fix our problem? How does it get to us? How does it serve us? How does His being righteous come to me? There's that transient union where all of His living is performed in union with us as if we were there with Him and in Him, as if we had done it ourselves. But at what point does the life of Christ enter into the circumstance in which we find ourselves today? We are by nature dead in trespasses and sins, by nature children of wrath. We saw last week again the answer is faith. Faith is that act of our souls taking hold of Him. Everything that you just heard about Him, you grab a hold of it. You say, I'll take that for me. That, that's what I want as mine. Give it to me. You cling to Him. Faith is more or less resting, leaning, laying ourselves down upon Christ. And by faith, we close upon this union. And by closing with Christ in faith, all that He has, all that He's done, in that instant becomes ours in time. Seeing that He lived this righteous life and we are united to Him, His righteousness is credited or imputed to us. God credits us with this alien righteousness. A righteousness that was performed outside of us. And God can do this because through our union with Christ, that's, it was ours anyway. That's why it was lived for us. It was wrought for us to be handed over to us. And so God takes the righteousness of Christ that He worked out in His life and He credits it to us as if it were our own. And in that moment, the gavel of God falls in our case and the verdict is righteous. Perfectly righteous. How do we relate to God? Christ. How do we relate to Christ? Well, we're united to Him. Well, well, okay, but being united to Christ, what, what is now my standing with God? Righteous. In His court. Righteous. Not with our own righteousness. And not with a righteousness that's worked into our souls and produced outwardly in our lives. That happens too. That's not this. That's a different doctrine. We are counted righteous only because of the life of Jesus Christ. Christ Himself is our righteousness. When God looks upon us in a legal way, He sees Christ. Just as we look out in the land, from the landscape, the high peak, and our eyes are filled with Christ, when God looks down upon His people, His eyes are filled with Christ. His nostrils are filled with the perfume of His Son's sacrifice. He sees and smells Christ. Paul says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, doctrine of union, in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. We stand before God as the righteousness of God. What, what is the Christian's Relationship to God, the righteousness of God in Christ. And how does this relate to what Paul's saying here? Well, think about it. In the world, Christians are seen as weak, low, beggarly. We have no standing with men. Men, we don't rate on their scale. We are not the shoe-ins at their parties. They don't say, oh, it's you, of course, you can come in. No. 
We're not invited to their table. We don't even, we're not even invited to their doorstep. No standing in this world according to the world's standards. But with God, we stand before Him justified, righteous, as Christ Himself is righteous. We're reconciled to God. We are invited to His table. We are told to come boldly up to His throne because of what Christ has done. The world standard. Weak. Nothing. Who are you? Move along. God says, righteous. Mine. All this is from God, Paul says. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us our righteousness. He says in Isaiah 63.5, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. God did it. God saw the need. He looked upon us. He said, they got nothing to offer. They can't do anything. So I'll do it. I'll bring the salvation. God saw the need. God sent His Son Christ lives the righteousness. He does it all. We owe all to Him. Christ is our righteousness. Now, what does all this mean for the human race at this point? What's the application? Well, first, as we saw last week, this should propel us all the more to faith. Faith. It's not just a good idea to believe some, some spiritual truths that make us feel like spiritual people. No, this is what is required of us to throw ourselves upon God in Christ. Faith is how we appropriate this righteousness. Faith is how it's applied. Faith is our part. If you're not a Christian, why, why, why would you not just believe and trust? Why? He's done everything. It doesn't make any sense to say, well, I hear what you're saying. That's good. I, I, I want to see if I get some better offers. I want to get a second opinion about this. There's none. Why would you not just believe? Stop trying to obey yourself into heaven. Stop trying to work your way into God's favor. Just look, look at your righteousness. Just count it for what it is. You know that it's worthless. You know that it's useless. You know that it's essentially filthiness. It's not righteous at all. As a matter of fact, whatever you might do in trying to earn righteousness before God is less than nothing. God counts that against you. You're walking backwards. You try to obey your way up to God's presence, you're walking backwards. You're getting further away. Stop. That's what God says. Stop trying. Cast yourself at the mercy of my son. Give up, he says. Rest in Christ. He's done it all. And if you are a Christian, well, the answer is really the same. Do it all the more. Extend that faith more and more upon Christ. Look at Him as the righteous one. As John says, when when you're burdened with the guilt of sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The one who lived our righteousness in our place, The one who will someday be our judge is also the one who is our advocate even now before the Father. The righteous one. Look at Him all the more. It propels us to faith. Secondly, this serves to change our thinking more on what salvation is biblically. Yes, we need righteousness. Yes, righteousness brings us back into a right standing with God. We must be reconciled to God. But those are secondary. Those are down the pipeline from the start. Union with Christ. I've been joined to His Son. Therefore, I'm righteous. In salvation, we get Christ. We get Him. We get all of Him. We get all all of Him for all of eternity. We're joined to Him. The problem with the idea that one might lose their salvation is a complete misunderstanding of what salvation even is. It's not a decision. It's not a commitment. It's union with the Son of God. So it helps to change our thinking about salvation. It's more than just the benefits. It's the the beneficiary. Number three, this gives us grounds for assurance. This is a great ground of the 
of our assurance of salvation. Because usually when we struggle with assurance, it's because we are analyzing ourselves too much. Now, we ought to examine our fruit, but we often go too far. We, we stop examining fruit, good things, and we just start looking at only bad, rotten things. Well, our standing with God, our righteousness, doesn't have anything, anything to do with us. It's His. It's Christ. Christ's righteousness. It's all and solely based on Christ's life. So if you struggle with assurance of salvation, then just go study the Gospels more. Read of Christ. Read of what the Father says. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God is pleased in His Son. Survey His life and death and Look intently at his words and his deeds and see if you can find some blemish in him. Can, can you find anything in the life of Christ that would expel him from heaven? That it would expel him from nearness to God? No? Well, that's your standing with God by faith. It's earned by Christ. Look at him. It's Christ that God considers, not you and your sin. We have to say to ourselves what David said. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God. You hope in yourself, turmoil. Hope in yourself, anxiety. Hope in yourself, worry. Hope in yourself, doubt. Hope in God. Hope in God. Specifically, God in Christ, providing a righteousness. Every Christian of every degree and level of faith recognizes we are not to hope in ourselves. We would all say that out loud. Of course, I can't earn my own salvation. Of course, I'm a sinner. Well, then why does that draw us away from, from assurance? I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Look at Him. Our confidence is in what God has provided and not what we can muster up in faith and love or any other grace. You have to learn to say to yourself what Theodore Beza said. Listen to this. Because Jesus Christ has by one infinite obedience made satisfaction to the infinite majesty of God... It follows that my iniquities can no more fray or trouble me. My accounts being assuredly raised by the precious blood of Christ. R-A-Z-E-D. Raised. Erased. Ruined. Because of what Christ has done. My iniquities cannot fray or trouble me. Because my standing with God is not based on my ability to rid myself of all my iniquities. It's based upon Him. What Christ has done. So that gives assurance. Fourthly, this gives us ground for boasting. It gives us ground for boasting. We're often accused, those of us who believe in a, a sovereign grace theology and, and, and God's sovereignty and salvation, we are often accused. Well, you, you, you just like that theology because it gives you a reason to boast that God chose you and didn't choose somebody else. Now, that accusation we know doesn't hold any water, but our doctrine about union with Christ and the righteousness that is ours in Him well, that does give us reason for boast, for boasting. Look at verse 31. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Yeah, we boast. Yeah, I've got to boast. I can boast all day long. Not in me. That, that's, that's the one I can't boast in. But I can boast in the Lord because He's done it all. It's God who gave us His Son. It's God who united us to His Son. It's Jesus who lived the righteous life. It's God who imputes that righteousness to us. It's God who declares us righteous. Our boast is in Him and Him alone. So it gives us grounds for boasting. And lastly, it gives us a cause for rejoicing. Rejoicing. I am glad that my standing with God is not based on my actions. That, that makes me rejoice. That makes me glad. I'm glad I don't have to make sure that I have properly analyzed and systematized and itemized all my sins and made a true and proper, sincere confession of every one of them and, and received absolution from a priest before I can then feel kind of confident to maybe go to God in prayer. No, I don't have to do that. My standing before God is in Christ. We can go to, into God's presence in whatever state, in and through Christ, because of what Christ has done, and in that we ought to rejoice. In Adam, we were cast away, but in Christ, we have been brought near.
So rejoice and be glad. As I say often, Christians should be the happiest people in the world. Because our standing with God, our relationship to God is not based on what we've done, but based on what Christ has done. Isaiah 61.10, I'll close with this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in God. Why? For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Let's pray.